Um, this week we're reading Parshat Shlach. Again, we're following the Israeli schedule. And for the next few weeks until we catch up on Chukat Balak, uh, in Chutzlar to be a week behind. So it gives us a whole week to think about uh, the topic of the content of the Shir. And I want to look at the story of what we commonly call the Miraglim, although that's a misnomer because they're never called that in this story itself. They're called Hatarim Ta'aris, the ones who scout out the land. And although we're going to come back to an earlier phrase, I want to start with a phrase that shows up near the end of this part of the narrative. Uh, what I've uh, clipped here is from just about the beginning, after the very beginning of Shlach is the mitzvah to send, and then the list of all the people who are who are uh, being sent from each tribe. Um, and then what I, I included from that point on, Moshe's mission to them in smaller font, and then their response, all the way up until God appears and quite angrily and originally uh, commits to destroying the people, and then Moshe negotiates that out. So we have all of that there. Uh, I'll just say from the outset that this shiur, I'm going to have to talk very fast, and a half an hour may not do it. Uh, one reason is because there is a, uh, an important methodological point about studying narrative that we have to talk about. The other is there is a, a widespread phenomenon in Tanakh that we have to explore. And the other is there's an unusual word we have to explore. And all of those is part of building up the argument uh, that is the backbone of the shiur. So I'm going to, all of those things will be done in abbreviated form, and each one of them really de deserves its own shiur. But I want to start with the text. Uh, after the scouts come back, they give their report. They show the fruit, they give the report. Um, we're going to look at this in more detail, but they give an initial report. Kalev speaks up, which means, the question is, like, who spoke in that first group? It says the people spoke, and then says Kalev, who was one of those people, then said something else. And then the people who went had a response to Kalev, which was far more hysterical, as we'll see. And then the people have a response, and the people's response is to cry and weep and say, we're going to our own deaths. Let's go back to Mitzrayim. And then Yoshua and Kalev, and this is where I want to start, So the first thing we hear about Yoshua and Kalev doing anything together is they tear their clothes. And then their response to the people, not to the other scouts, but to the people, is the land that we that Hashem is bringing us to is a very good land. If Hashem wants to, He'll bring us to land and He'll give it to us. It's Zavat Chalavut Bash, but don't rebel against Hashem. The enemies are nothing. Their protection has left them, if that's maybe how we want to read it. And, uh, and Hashem is with us and we're going to win. The question is how much of the counter to the previous statement that is. But my interest here is why did they tear their clothes? And you can see I highlighted those two words, karuvig dam. When do we tear clothes? What is tearing clothes about? Why do they tear their clothes? Anybody want to suggest something? Why you know Shor and Kalev tore their clothes at this point? And again, it's at the point that the people have their hysterical reaction to the over-hysterical words of some of the scouts, we don't know whom, um, and we're going to look at those words during the shiur. Why do they tear their clothes? So when do we generally tear clothes? 
Tearing clothes is a sign of what? Avilut. What? It's mourning, right? When somebody gets the, here's the word that, or you're in the presence of somebody who dies, you tear your clothes. And now in Tanakh, when are clothes torn? So you would automatically assume the same thing, basically based on, and this will touch on the, broad, the broader methodological point I want to discuss in a couple minutes, based on the fact that that's what we're accustomed to. We're accustomed to Kriya as being a response to Avelut. You hear the terrible news that somebody died, you tear your clothes. Not only that, but if you're present when anybody dies, even on a relative, you have to tear Kriya. If you're present when a Sefer Torah is destroyed, you have to tear Kriya. So in the presence of sort of absolute destruction, you tear Kriya, okay? We know that you tear Kriya when you see Makom HaMikdash, or so many people when they look across the border and see Gush Katif, that used to be, uh, they tear Kriya. Jewish homes in Israel that were destroyed, as an example. All right. But that may not tell us what it is in Tanakh. That tells us what it is in our practice. So what is Kriyat HaBigadim in Tanakh? So is tearing clothes a response to death? Yes, but maybe not exactly. What's the most famous example you can think of of somebody tearing clothes when he hears that somebody died? Uh, Yaakov. Yaakov. When he hears that, what happened? That Yosef died, right? And Yosef didn't die, but that was the report he got. It actually wasn't the report he got. He got a cloak, and the cloak was Yosef's cloak, and it had blood on it. And the brothers sent the message. They weren't even there. They sent the message saying, we found this. Does this belong to Yosef? And Yaakov says, yes, it's Yosef's coat. Yosef's been destroyed by animal, wild animals, and he tears his clothes. But interestingly, we are, we have Yitzchak and Yishmael, by the way, at Avram's burial. We don't hear about them tearing clothes. We hear about Yaakov bearing Yitzchak. We don't hear about him tearing clothes, right? We don't even hear about the brothers tearing their clothes at Yaakov's bedside. But we do hear about Yaakov tearing his clothes when he hears that Yosef was killed. He thinks that Yosef was killed. Why? So when else do we encounter tearing clothes? So there are two famous parallel stories about tearing clothes in the Nevi'im. One's in Shmuel and one's in Malachim. In Shmuel, when uh, Shaul messes up when the story of Amalek, and he encounters Shmuel and tries to say he did the right thing, and Shmuel says, that's it, you've lost the kingdom, because Hashem already told him, I'm firing Shaul. Like, look at what happens. Shmuel turns his back to walk away from Shaul. And Shaul, he grabs on the Shaul, evidently Shaul's garment, and tears it, or else Shaul grabs him. Either way, a garment gets torn. Shmuel has this be a meaningful act. God has ripped away the kingdom from you. So what you just did is a symbolic act. And that same exact thing happens several generations later when Achiyah HaShiloni, Achiyah the Navi from Shiloh, encounters Yaravam ben Nevat out in the field, and he takes um, a new garment that he has, and he rips it into 12 parts, and he gives 10 of them to Yeravam and says, God has ripped away the kingdom from Shlomo. And he's given you 10 of the parts. That's the tribes. So there's two parallel stories here about ripping that has nothing to do with death, per se, or death in any sense, but about somebody having failed their mission, 
and uh, and the ripped garments representing a ripped kingdom. When else do we see Kriyat Gadim? Interesting story is Ahab. Ahab was not, shall we say, the most beloved of kings in Tanakh. Ahab, if you recall the story, and it's a very powerful story, Ahab comes up to a neighbor of his named Navot, a Yisraeli in Israel, and he says, you know, you're my neighbor, and you have a beautiful vineyard. I'd like to buy your vineyard. No, there's no, no eminent domain here. I'd like to buy your vineyard from you. Or if you want, I'll give you a better vineyard somewhere else. Because it's his neighbor who wants the vineyard. And, and Navot says to the king, God forbid I would ever send my, sell my ancestral uh, property. Ahab comes home and pouts. So Izebel, who's also not going to win any awards, uh, for miscongeniality in Tarach. Um, uh, Isabel, his wife, comes home and sees him pouting. And she says, what are you there? He tells her the story. She says, do you be a king? I'll take care of it. She convenes a kangaroo court, hires false witnesses. They testify that Navot cursed the king and cursed God. Because he cursed God, he's, he's liable for the death penalty. Because he cursed the king, that's a traitor. And therefore, his property becomes property of the, estate, of the royal estate. Navot is killed. And then she comes home to, to Ahab and says, Lech el Kerem Navot, go down to Raid el Kerem Navot, go down to his vineyard. Navot Navot's dead. They're not alive, he's dead. And the vineyard's yours. He goes down to see it. Eliyahu Navi comes. And in what may be the three most powerful words strung together anywhere, he comes up to Ahab and he says, yarashta. He can't say that quietly. You've murdered and you've also inherited. You've murdered this guy and you've inherited his stuff. And then he reads Ahav the riot act. And what happens? Use these words, he tears his clothes. He's not tearing his clothes of Avelut for Navot. And what does he do? He puts sackcloth on, he fasts, he behaves like a mourner. But what he's really behaving like is a penitent. And by the way, the result is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu turns around and says, Ahav, for all that he was terrible, for all that he instituted state-sponsored idolatry, nonetheless, Hashem forgives him because of his tshuva. So you see Kriyat Gadim here, not as a response to death as it is, but rather a response to an awareness of sin. And I'll give you a couple of examples and to highlight that, because that's going to bring us back and raise the question. <clears throat> when the famous Sefer Torah is found in, in the Mikdash, the story of Yoshiel and the Sefer Torah, they bring it to the king and they bring and they read it. And what does the king do? He tears his clothes. He tears his clothes when he hears the words of the Torah they had not heard before. And then he says, why? God is angry with us because we did not pay attention to this Sefer Torah. They feel separated from God because they've sinned. And this is something that if you think about it, going back to Kriyat Gadim in Chumash, Yaakov, you're right, tears his clothes. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But before that, who tears his clothes about Yosef? Reuven does. And when does Reuven tear his clothes? When Reuven comes back to the cistern, because his plan was to pull Yosef out and save him. He sees Yosef's not there. He tears his clothes. Why is he tearing his clothes? So I'll give you another example that's not on the page. 
When do the brothers as a group tear their clothes? Do you remember? When, when the uh, Gavia. Right, exactly. Very good, Dovi. When the when Yosef's agent checks all of their bags and finds the Gavia in Benjamin's uh, bag, they tear their clothes. What are they tearing their clothes for? So I think what the common feature that these all have is somebody is saying, I made a terrible, mortal mistake. A mistake that cost a life. The brothers say, we negotiated with father and we got him to agree to give, bring Benjamin down and now we're going to pay the price. Yaakov says, I'm an idiot. I sent Yosef out to see his brothers who hate him and now he's dead. I'm paying the price. Reuven says, I had a plan that was a bad plan. I, put, said, I said, leave Yosef in the born, I'll come save him. And I blew it. It's a realization of sin of a grievous level. Sin that could cost somebody their life. Not just a stun, but something that's a, that has huge implications. And that's what all of these things have in common. And I'll show you the best example of it, which I'm indebted to my teacher and friend, Rabbi Avram Lieberman, pointing this out to me yesterday when we were schmoozing about it, is at the end of Ezra. At the end of Ezra, we have this whole entourage comes to Ezra, and they confess about the fact that they have, that they have married foreign wives. You know, that's the big issue in Ezra. And now watch what Ezra says. I tore my garments. And then he does other things that are active, that are actions that we think we think of as mourning actions. And I'm sitting there all day fasting and mourning this action. And I bow down and I put my hands up to God. This is all part of contrition. And listen to the rest of his words. So far, pleading with God to forgive us for this terrible trespass that we've had in marrying these foreign women. So that's what Kriyat Gadim is in Tanakh. And I believe that Kriyat Gadim that we have when somebody dies is really a measure of that. We have a Gemara that says an interesting piece. If a member of a social group, a member of a, of a clan, of a Chaburav Chachamim passes away, the whole group should be afraid. Now, one way to read that is that there's some sort of a constellation thing hanging over them and they're all up for the chopping block. But I think a simpler way to read it is this should bring death home to you and you should be more aware of it, more sensitive to it. And remember, no matter how great a person is, we all make mistakes, we all sin. And the Kriya might be a piece of that. As a matter of fact, who else tears his clothes halachically besides an Abba? Uh, a Mitzora, right. Somebody who is who is either um, due to his medical condition of Tzarat, which is a spiritual medical condition, distance from the community, or you're right, Toby, somebody who is excommunicated. And those are all related to, I'm in this situation because I've done something terrible. All right. So now, all of that introduction about Kriyat Gadim. Yoshua Minun and Kalev Nifuna tear their clothes. Why are they tearing their clothes? So the simple explanation that we look at locally within the context of the story is they hear B'nai Israel talking such terrible talk, such terrible trash talk against God, against Moshe, they tear their clothes. But that doesn't really fit tearing clothes throughout Tanakh. So I'd like to leave that question and come circle back to it because I want to now address a, a broader methodological question, but it'll be briefly. 
we have a great advantage and a great disadvantage in our study of Tanakh. And the great advantage is the great disadvantage. The great advantage is the scope of our knowledge, and that's our disadvantage. For example, when we see the story of Yosef and his brothers in Yaakov, it's a great an instance of this. We know what Yosef's thinking. We know what the brothers are thinking. We know what father knows and doesn't know. We know what each party knows. The problem is we know all of that, and we forget that Yosef doesn't know what father was thinking. Yosef doesn't know father's mourning for him, and etc. And we see that many examples of where you have multiple characters, and they all know different things, but we, the omniscient reader, knows it all, and we forget that they don't know. So that omniscience really becomes a deficiency. Sorry for the alliteration. That's one piece of the puzzle. There's yet another piece of the puzzle. We have the benefit of hindsight. And that benefit, again, is a detriment. For instance, when we read the story of the Akedah, I don't know anybody, myself included, who actually gets concerned for Yitzchak's welfare. Because we know how it ends up. After all, my parents wouldn't have called me Yitzchak if not for, and they go back a bunch of generations, if not for the fact that Yitzchak actually made it past the Akedah. So we know it's going to end. And yet, when reading the story, we only get the full sense, the full flavor, the full depth of the story if we put ourselves in it and are actually concerned what's going to happen to Yitzchak. Now that's a piece of a larger picture, which is, when we read a story in Tanakh and we know how it's going to end up, we also know how the character is going to end up. So because we know Lavan of Perak Lamed Aleph in Breshit, what we end up doing is reading that as Lavan and Perak Chavdalet. And Lavan and Perak Lamed Aleph has enmity towards Yaakov. And as a result of that, we read Lavan and Perak Chavdalet when he comes out to greet Avram's slave as being a devious fellow who's trying to find gold and silver in his, in his cheeks. But that's not necessarily who Lavan is back there. People grow, people change. As an example of that, think about Bilam. Bilam, who we consider to be a wretch, a terrible person, must at some point, it's a point the Rambam makes, must at some point of his life been quite spiritually virtuous, because otherwise, how could he be a Navi? Which means somewhere he fell off the wagon, but people change. But what we have a tendency to do is to look at people and read their beginnings as based on their ends and not allow them for growth. By the way, it happens in the other direction. We read Avram Avinu as a young kid being Avram Avinu of an advanced age with all of his growth and development and spiritual sensitivity that he gained along the way as being there from, from, the, first, from the start. And that doesn't allow us to watch him grow and develop and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and become really a great person. Now, what's really interesting is the three characters in Tanakh that we get to watch grow up and make mistakes and learn from them and become great. Yaakov, Yosef, and David. And Moshe, perhaps. And it, it's really enlightening when we allow ourselves to read them that way. The reason I'm saying that is because we come to our story, and our story is about 12 important people, one from each in, uh, inheriting tribe, that are sent to the land to scout the land out. They come back, and they, we don't know who they is, give a report. Then, Kalev, one of the 12, speaks up and seems to be, and is fairly clearly, in 
uh, in, in, uh, in, in contradiction to them in some way. And then they speak up. Again, who's the they? Now, where's Yoshua in this whole picture? Is Yoshua part of one group, part of another group, part of the third group? And after they speak up the second time, the whole nation goes crazy. And then Yoshua and Kalev tear their clothes. So keeping in mind what tearing clothes are, let's read the story itself. And there's one word that we have to focus on here. That was my methodological point. One word we have to focus on here that understanding the word properly is going to maybe change the way we look at the story. All right. What I have here is the section of the story in blue, and there's nothing political about this. In blue, I have Moshe's commands. And in red, I have the response of the scouts in their first response. What did Moshe tell them to do? See the land. And the people who live there. Are they strong or weak? Are they numerous or, or, or not? What are the people? What do they answer? They're a strong people. We saw giants. That's exactly what they were told. Then Amalek By the way, this is nothing new. We knew that Amalek lives in the South Negev because they came and attacked us a few months ago. So the main Canaanite nations live in the mountain country. The Kanim live in the lowlands, on the coastal plain and in the Jordan Valley. Nothing new there. And then Moshe says, Is the land good or bad? And what kind of cities do they live in? Do they live in open cities or fortresses? And what do the people answer? They have big fortresses. Again, they're just answering the question. Is the land fat or not? And the answer is, And and then Hayeshpa Eitzimayin, Moshe says, do they have the trees or not? And what do they sue? By your own fear. Show them the land. Obviously, there's trees. And the end of Moshe's command is, take fruit of the land. And what do they do? They bring grapes and figs and pomegranates, which means they seem to have done exactly what they were asked to do. So now let's look at the full thing in the text. And we'll see something strange happen. All right, from the big line. So this group of 12 comes to Moshe and Aaron. Location. They give a response to them in front of everybody. And they show them the fruit of the land. They tell. Now, who's they? It sounds like all 12 of them are talking. If not all 12 together, it's all 12 of them and one person, maybe a spokesperson. So we went to the land that you sent us. Indeed, it's a land of milk and honey flowing. And here's the fruit. Ephes. Now, this is the word I want to focus on. What does the word Ephes mean? So contextually, we often translate it here as being but. Problem is that that translation doesn't seem to have a good anchor, not either neither in etymology, in philology, or in the rest of Tanakh. Meaning, Ephes doesn't doesn't mean that. What does Ephes usually mean? If you look at the second page, you will see. Sorry, yeah, the second page, you will see that the word Ephes typically means something negligent, right? The first time Ephes shows up is when Yosef. People talk to Yosef and say, we have no money left. I'll face Kasef. The money's gone. Give us seed. We have no more money to pay for seed, right? Um, when, 
when Balak takes Bilam to another corner, he says, Ephes You only see a small slice of the people, Ephes, and not the whole group. In throughout Tanakh, the ends of the earth, the very in, in um uh tangential and uninhabited ends of the earth are called Apseharits. The negligent parts of the land, right? Um Indeed, here we have Ephes Kiloy Bachayavion, famous passage in Tvarim with the word Ephes, which the Rishonim are bothered by because the text here says, You will never have anybody poor in your midst, and it's followed by the mitzvah of Staka. And so, what does Ephes Kiloy Bachayavion? So, some people explain it means is that it's not, it's not true that, that you're not going to have Evion, right? Or that if you do all the things that I told you about, then there won't be such a thing as Nevion. Either way, it's negligent. And you can look through the sources. You'll see that Ephes seems to have that meaning. So I'd like to <laughs> reread these words a little differently. But first, I want to go ahead in this interaction. Ephes Kiazaam, this is what the people say, these representatives of the 12. And now something strange happens. Moshe silences the people. Uh, silences the people towards Moshe. Unclear what that means. That's all he says. We will indeed go up, and we are able to beat them. Which, by the way, doesn't really contradict what the people said. All the people said was, "It's a beautiful land, but the people there are strong, and there's uh, nations living there," which is not new information. So Kalev seems to be overreacting. And we see he overreacts because look what happens in the next line. That's something many people are, are sensitive to. Up until now, the information that the scouts gave was factual, was tempered, was not hyperbolic at all. Now listen. The people who went up with him said, which sounds like the other 11, it sounds like, we will not be able to go up because they are stronger than we. The drush are stronger than God, but stronger than we are. And now they speak Lashon about the land. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. Lots of Midrashim on that. The people we saw were huge. Now they start getting mythological. We start. We saw the Nephilim. These are from the beginning of Rashi. And now you know they're lying because they say, In our eyes, we felt like grasshoppers. We were also like grasshoppers in their eyes. Which, of course, how do you know that? So what you see has happened is something that we're familiar with. Somebody tells a story, and you challenge it. Typically, the person's not going to say, you're right, it wasn't really like that. Typically, they're going to say, no, and they get further more extreme, and they push. Now, notice what happens here. It's after the second report of the scouts, the one that's hysterical and full of giants and mythological creatures and monsters, then, everybody cries out, and they weep, and they, and they complain, and they say, why did you bring us here? Why didn't we just die in the desert? Why you bring? Why is Hashem bring us to land so that we die by the sword? Our kids are going to be destroyed. Our wives are going to be destroyed. Better we should go back to Mitzrayim. Let's appoint an officer and go back to Mitzrayim. 
and Moshe and Aaron have no way to say anything. They can't say anything because they were not party to this. What do Yoshua and Kalev do? They tear their clothes and then they give their response. Why do they tear their clothes? So I'd like to first look at Kalev because I think it's easier. I think Kalev tears his clothes because he realizes that he spoke errantly. That by taking what the what his fellow scouts had said and understanding it as surrender or understanding it as anticipating defeat or massacre and therefore speaking and saying, no, we can go. Look what he did. He pushed them to go crazy. And Nebuch, the people, don't know anything. They weren't there. So they're hearing a few of, we'll call it 10, of these scouts crying and screaming and monsters and boogeymen. And that's when they say, let's go back. What actually caused the people to say, let's go back? Indirectly, Kalev. Had Kalev been silent, not said anything, and we stopped this reading at, uh, at Pasuk Chatet, the people's reaction would have been, okay, Moshe, what do we do? You're our leader. We've already fought on lake. We know how to fight wars. What do we do? How do we fight this war? But Kalev jumps in. And Kalev says what he does, and I think Kalev realizes that afterwards. He was the reason for this crazy reaction that led to the people's rebellion, really. And he tears his clothes out of tshuva. This also explains something else. Everybody looks at this story and says, Kalev is the guy who had the guts to speak up. Yoshua kind of stayed in the background. And yet when it comes time to appoint a successor, who does Moshe appoint? Yoshua. And what does Hashem say? You take Yoshua because Yoshua is Isha Sheruach Bo. And look at the Rashi there. He's somebody who knows how to deal with different people at different times. Kalev, on the other hand, is Ruach Acheret, as the text later says. He's somebody who's a zealot. He's somebody who jumps in. He is, if you will, borrowing from the Midrash, the Nachshon of this thing. He jumps in and makes his point, but sometimes a little too quick, sometimes a little too brash, and look what happens. But I think Halev's tearing his clothes is an act of tshuva on, 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 and, and the sense of hate on, on, on his own merit, on his own right. What about Yoshua? Why does Yoshua tear his clothes? So you could have a you could follow the same line of thinking and say Yoshua tears his clothes because he felt he should have spoken up and he didn't speak up. But I'm going to say something now, and it's uh, I'm very nervous about saying it. I'm going to say it anyways. Let's go back to this word FS. And if we read the word FS as meaning what it typically means, which is it's negligent, then read these words very differently, and you'll see Kalev misunderstood them. What did the people say? Here's the land. Here's the fruit. Ephes Kiyasa'am. All right. They're big, they're strong people. All right. They've got fortresses. Amalek's here, there, there. We knew all that. Okay. No. Ephes. No. We can go with no problem. Which means Kalev's reaction is really out of place. Which means Kalev didn't understand Ephes. He thought they were saying, but we're not going to be able to go. And the reality is that people were saying, all right, they're there, but we can go. When Kalev challenges them, their reaction is, to put up the front. It's very possible that Yoshua was part of that first group. And then Yoshua now realizes that maybe he should not have joined that first group. Again, this is the issue of the methodology. When all the dust settles, we look at these 10 guys as the worst guys in history. 
And these 10 guys get zapped by God on the spot. They don't get to wait out four years. They get zapped on the spot. So we read it backwards and say, these Titan 10 guys were terrible from the whole beginning. And Yeshua stayed away from them. Which, of course, is a very big problem, because why would Moshe send 10 terrible people? But if we read it, the simple shot, which is they said, means they all said. Maybe even Kalev was part of that first report, because the first report is not, is not negative. It's not, it's not threatening. In which case, the FS is, part, is something that Kalev is part of also. And then Kalev says, but don't worry, we can beat them. And that pushes the other guys over the limit. And it's very possible that Yoshua and Kalev both understand that they played a role in the insurrection by egging on the other 10 guys, either by not speaking moderately in favor of conquest, or by not or by pushing them pushing against them like Kalev did. And because of their role in it, they tore their career, they tore their Ligadim. I know it's an unconventional way to look at it. You guys are used to that. But I think that again, we have to read the story fresh, start from where we are, understand that Moshe picked 10, 12 leaders, a leader from each tribe. These are people who are all fine people. Something got to them either on the road or at this confrontation in front of the people. And it's very possible that it's both Kalev and Yoshua in different ways contributed to that. And when they realized that, they tore their clothes out of sense of their own contrition. And then they spoke up because they're trying to fix it. You don't just tear your clothes and sit contrite. You, you get rid of the foreign wives. You don't just sit there and act contrite. You try to do something better with Navot's property. You try to fix things. And speak up to try to fix things. And I think that gives us a, a different view and a much more nuanced view of the events here. Not everything's black and white. Our heroes are not all lily white and our villains are not all charcoal black, to use some very, very in, uh, politically incorrect terms. Um, uh, but rather, there's a lot more nuance to the text. And if you read the text carefully, we'll see that there's a lot more nuance also in the behavior even of our great heroes and even of people who end up at the end of the story being our most devious villains. And hopefully this gives us a better insight into the whole story of what turned out to be a tragic interaction that led to a whole generation dying out in the desert, and ultimately, per Chazal, became the seeds for Tisha B'Av.